0: You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. They will be posted there every week. It has been a whirlwind since last week. Michael and I were out fishing. Dale was out turkey hunting. Randy was out beaver trapping. We were spread out all over the place, and collectively we spent a lot of time in the field. So uh, we're gonna have everybody give a little update on how their week went.
1: We got 53 beaver. Well, they did. I could only film it because non-residents can't trap there. We had a big beaver festival, big meal where everybody came over, got to see a bunch of my old friends, my old family, and a lot of great memories of growing up where trapping beaver was a huge part of who I am and what I did. And with that comes a whole series about beaver trapping. I hope you like it because we put a lot of effort into this. I, I wouldn't call it work because it's so much fun, but it was a lot of work. So last week, uh Jesse, a buddy of mine from the military and I went out to Eastern Montana and went turkey hunting. Uh, we had a great four and a half days or so of turkey hunting and got on some birds. We killed four birds in four days by just hopping around to little sections of public here and there. Um, Luckily found gobbling birds kind of had to deal with some weather issues with some snow and rain and wind and sunny and everything else. But it was a really great time and yeah Uh, last week marcus and i went to flathead lake caught some lakers and also spent some days not catching lakers caught some bass so got to do a little bit of different fishing than other than trout fishing which makes me pretty happy that's about it i'm on day 64 or 65
0: and heading to lake powell for a bachelor party tomorrow and possibly catch some stripers down there so we'll see we're gonna be in a houseboat jigging and
1: uh, having fun. So that's kind of the fish report from my
0: corner. So yeah, it was a great week. Catching those lake trout was a blast when they were actually biting. There was definitely slow times when they weren't biting, uh, but man, when one of those when one of those grabs a hold of your hook, it's pretty, pretty fun. Uh, and I also found out that I am not a good bass fisherman, so I got to work on that. Michael is this like Bill Van Dam, you know, flipping under docks and this setting the hook, you know. Uh, big bass fisherman guys so i need to learn from from that and and uh, take a few notes but with that we're going to jump into some headlines the mapland act was signed into law last week which will help fund federal agencies to digitize maps and release them to the public Uh, This seemed like a pretty popular piece of legislation on both sides Uh, so it's nice to see some common ground and get something pushed through. A little context to this, the last five to ten years the ease of finding and sharing information online has definitely taken huge bounds. It's gotten way easier to find stuff. Uh, a ton of information available. That being said, in regards to public land information, the federal agencies, it has been a little bit cumbersome trying to find some things. For instance, road and trail information, what the rules are for a given area, it's it's been a little confusing. For example, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management field offices have different policies in different areas. In some areas, it might be that driving on any existing road and trail is allowed, while the next area over might be that you can only drive on roads that are signed open. And the policies are not necessarily standardized from area to area. The same goes for Forest Service, Fish Wildlife Service and other federal agencies. So some regions have travel management plans in place where they have maps that are available to the public, hard copy maps. I used to have a ton of these. I still have a ton of these. I love looking at at hard copy maps, uh, but not every area had one of those, so you didn't necessarily know what the dates were that the road was open or what areas, what the trail restrictions are, if you could take a bicycle or a motorbike or an ATV or whatever. Uh, that information just wasn't readily available in all areas. Again, some areas had it, others didn't. Um, So hopefully, the passage of this bill will provide the funding and the nudge that these agencies need to get that information out to the public online, uh, because the information is there. Each office does have hard copies or they have it on on their own drives of what is the status of this road, what are the rules associated with it, it was just not very easy to find in a lot of cases. I've definitely called numerous offices asking for information on roads, trails. Um, and so forth. And my hope is, and it wasn't exactly spelled out, but I really hope that this is also going to provide good information on what the status is on trail clearing, uh, the road surface, because some areas are super rutted out or the trails haven't been cleared in years and there's this deadfall across them. So having up-to-date information, which they have, on, again, these agencies have that information. They know when they last cleared the trail, but it's just not readily available. So I think this is going to be a good step forward in, in getting better information out to the public. Um, Good stuff there. So I f- was referred to this report from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's website. It's uh, pretty interesting stuff. Maritza Georgia, guaranteed I pronounced that name wrong, she interviewed Mark Finney, who is a fire science lab researcher, and they do experiments in a lab setting on how fire spreads. A little context, in recent years, wildfires have gotten way out of hand, especially in the West on Forest Service lands. Many factors have led to this, but one of the big ones was for years, basically from the 30s to the 70s, and arguably still now, the Forest Service has put out every fire as quickly as possible. In theory, they don't do this as much anymore as they have a let it burn policy in certain areas, but largely, if there's any potential threat to human property or life, they're going to still put that fire out pretty quickly. So I would argue that the let it burn applies in a pretty small fraction of wildfires. If it's in a building area, it's a low risk to uh, damaging property or or human life, then yes, they will let it burn for sure, but um, largely there's been a lot of fire suppression still, uh, and which is just necessary. That's this part of our, the society we live in now. There is enough urban sprawl and people on the landscape that we're kind of in a pickle, uh, and the pickle basically is that for years we have been increasing the fuel load. There is more brush on the understory, there are more trees, the trees die, the brush dies. That's a ton of fuel for when fires come through. It just goes super fast and there's big severe fires and are way more threatening to everything. This lab is now providing science-backed support to show different ways to mitigate this problem. Uh, The simplified explanation is fighting fire with fire. By having prescribed burns and choosing when they happen, you can reduce that understory and reduce the severity of the fire, hopefully lessening the impact on the landscape. I think a quote from Mark Finney summed it up pretty well. Quote, we do not have a choice about fire. Every year we prove we do not have the power to choose not to have it. The only power we have is when to have it and what kind to have, that's it, end quote. Using the science from this lab, the Forest Service has been able to put together a wildfire crisis strategy, adopting this, Uh, idea of reducing the potential risk before it happens. So a fairly simplified explanation again is by thinning out the trees and the understory and then choosing the timing of the burn in a more controlled setting they are able to reduce the severity of the fires on the landscape. I think many people have known the answer to this for a long time uh, but this is just providing science-backed evidence that yes we need to uh, mitigate a lot of this before it gets out of hand, which it already has in a lot of areas, as we've seen uh, throughout the fire seasons in the last few years, it gets crazy. So this plan, this new forest service plan is to treat over 50 million acres across the United States. Pretty big project and it's gonna require years of maintenance and um, doing it over and over again, but that's the world we live in that we've created for ourselves. So. With that, on to the next story, in Arizona, it looks like there will be some changes to the -the over-the-counter deer archery seasons. Every over-the-counter unit now has mandatory reporting within 48 hours of the kill, and every unit is going to have a quota. As soon as that quota is met, the season will close for that unit the Wednesday following. There are a lot of over-the-counter archery deer opportunities in Arizona, and there's a good chance that in some of these areas there won't be a late season. So in general, the, these over-the-counter units have an early season, an August timeframe, and then a late season in the January timeframe. The main seasons are in between, but there, it's entirely possible that the late season won't happen at all because the quota will fill uh, beforehand. So like anything, there's a lot of factors that have led to this regulation change. The biggest one is the drought and habitat conditions. When you have a long term drought like this, the deer numbers, the deer population is going to be reduced. It's just a matter of the fact, Uh, not only is the habitat quality reduced, but then you also have increasing hunter success because less water on the landscape concentrates the deer, they're easier to kill. That combined with there are just a lot more hunters in the field. Uh, hunters are getting better at killing animals. The, per- the harvest success is going up along with hunter numbers. And with an over-the-counter opportunity, there's no cap on this currently. And so they have to mitigate this somehow. And the pandemic happened, which put a ton more people in the field, ton more hunters out there, compounded by people like us, and social media, media platforms promoting over-the-counter opportunities in Arizona. Uh, We can't pretend like we didn't have a hand in it. We definitely helped increase uh, the number of over-the-counter hunters in Arizona. So you can blame us. I don't think it was entirely us that caused it, but we definitely had a hand in it. Can't pretend that didn't happen. We'll see how that all shakes out. It'll be interesting to see how fast these quotas fill in some of these units. Along those same lines, there has been a decrease in available mule deer permits in Oregon, Nevada, Wyoming, and Utah. Again, one of the big factors from this is the long-term drought. It's just, you just can't support that that big of a uh, quota when you have reduced habitat conditions. You just, it just, every state is having to mitigate it in their own way. In Wyoming, the corner crossing case that recently has been in the spotlight, these four hunters in question have been found not guilty of criminal trespass. Uh, For more on what that means, we have Randy and we're gonna do a deeper dive.
1: Without spending too much time on it, there's criminal trespass and there's civil trespass. Right. Criminal trespass is where you get a ticket and the district attorney says, hey, you're gonna get prosecuted for this. Civil trespass is where two private parties, a landowner and say a recreationist, get sued. So the landowner sues the you know public land user or whoever in this case. So uh, what we had in Wyoming was, like you said, a criminal trespass case with four non-residents from Missouri who mm-hmm. were in hunting. Yep. And they did. I mean, they used a ladder. They had a step
0: ladder and yeah.
1: They they, they did everything possible. Right. Well, uh, well, this, and you
0: uh, you did that you did the podcast where you really went deep on yes, this. There's yeah. two part podcast that like dives into this like in depth. But now we're yep. part way through, uh, yeah. Uh, yep. You know, starting to understand <laughs> where this is going. I guess. I
1: yeah. So what happened is you referred to the case getting heard by a six person jury. Yep. And it came back not guilty.
0: Which at first you're like, I feel, you know, hunters are excited, corner yeah. crossing's legal, let's go. Yeah. But it sounds A bit like of it, caution. it's not as exciting as that, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and everybody knew this going into it, especially right. if you, you understand laws, that, okay, if you have the same exact facts and circumstances in Carbon County, Wyoming, mm-hmm. this says you're not criminally right. trespassing outside of carbon county wyoming who knows if it's a different set of facts and circumstances who knows so people like to get worked up about precedent but if you think about the priority of law any attorney will tell you that case precedent is pretty low
0: gotcha that's well, that, yeah that's what <coughs> i can we like dive deeper into that because like sure with precedent basically the whole idea is that when a court decision is made, right, that it's going to apply to a wide array of right. circumstances down the road. So That's what, what, what is the difference? Why doesn't this? What would set precedent and why doesn't this?
1: Well, the, the reason it doesn't is, one, it was a case at a lower court yeah. in Carbon County, Wyoming. Now, if it would have worked its way up and got to the Wyoming Supreme Court, Or as in the case of the civil charges that this landowner has charged these four hunters with, he said, I'm gonna sue you for damages as a civil trespass.
0: And that's a separate case. Separate
1: case. So they won the criminal case by saying not guilty. In the interim, here a few months ago, the landowner says, well, I'm damaged in such a great way, I'm gonna sue you for damages. Right. Well, the smart attorneys representing these four hunters said, well, With all these crazy claims this guy's making, we want this in federal court. Now we're getting somewhere. Gotcha. So federal court all of a sudden applies at a far greater level Mm -hmm. than just a little criminal case at a local court. So that's that's the hope is that
0: yeah to me i guess it's exciting that they were found Mm -hmm. not guilty at the local level but then we they're still big unknown and Mm -hmm. as far as i can tell you were saying that there's no no date set for the federal case yet so that's still yet to be seen when that's actually going to all
1: culminate (laughs) yet to be decided the person bringing forth the claim Mm -hmm. can withdraw it at any time so there's the risk that this person says oh man i got my butt handed to me and in the criminal case, why would I waste all this time and money in a civil case? Right. So there's that issue, and I, I hope people understand that they were deemed to be not guilty. That doesn't say it does. It, the The jury did not say that. Oh, the airspace above land is or is not owned by the landowner. Right. So that issue still hasn't been. Sorted out. All the jury said is you're not guilty of criminal trespass under
0: Wyoming's
1: criminal statute.
0: Yeah. When I saw something in one of these articles I read that said that there was something that could come up from the previous year when they did it in 2020, right. which mm-hmm. was a different set of circumstances, right. I assume, on ha- like in the method that they used to cross the corner, so they could be mm-hmm. even tried on that, right? Which is a different set of circumstances. So every time. It's slightly different, it could lead to a slightly different outcome.
1: And some people would say, wait a second, there's the protection of double jeopardy. In other words, you can't be charged for the same crime twice. Right. Well, a smart prosecutor would say, when they did this in 2020, the facts and circumstances were different. The time was different. How they did it was different. We're going to bring forth another charge. And so my understanding is that that charge either is being brought forth or has been brought forth, gotcha. and then the case could be reargued on a different set of facts and circumstances in the same, same court. Gotcha. So, yeah. hopefully, people don't think this is like a wide open gates. This this solves everything. We still have not had a determination of whether or not the space over over a corner or over private land. Right. Whether that is or is not owned by the landowner, or in the case of if it's public land, owned by the public, and how that affects trespass. We may get that in the federal civil case, because if you read some of the claims the claimant is making, the, in this case the landowner, mm-hmm. they're getting way out there on some of these pieces, trying to establish that as fact.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting like the damages from reaching across a plane. I mean that cuz that's kind of what right. they're arguing, right? Is that there mm-hmm. were, that there was damages from that and they need to be right reimbursed so, for it.
1: When when the kid next door throws his football over in your yard, right? And he comes over and gets his football. Yeah.
0: Technically that is civil trespass. Well, and that would be a much more severe case because yeah. he's actually <laughs> setting foot Yeah, he he so bent like your, your grass he,
1: over. Right. So The question becomes, what are the damages? Is it, well, first of all, is it even trespass? In other words, does the landowner really own that airspace to the absolute degree that he is claiming? If so, did they violate that? So the hope in federal court would be that it goes before a judge and the judge issues an opinion. Mm -hmm. Because very seldom do you have a court case settled by a jury where you get an opinion. You just get guilty, not guilty. A lot of times you wanna go to a higher court because a judge will give the legal opinion.
0: Gotcha. And
1: it might be a a long, long legal argument that the judge provides. So we don't know where it's going, Uh, but it's good that they didn't lose right here. Right. Had, Had they lost right here, I think most people would have said, all right guess that solves it so they didn't lose that's good uh, yep. I, for I, hunters,
0: I, for public access that's good I guess yeah but
1: you, you and I have been down to this area where yeah where they did this looked at the exact corner here. exact corner Marcus and I drove up to it there was a county road with a gate across it, locked and here were these signs that are in all these pictures so we know where this is I just wonder now with this case are you going to see a bunch of elk hunters down there with stepladders on their backs
0: (laughs) it'll be interesting well it's yeah i mean i always like i like to compare it to if someone was walking their dog along in front of your yard and their arm crossed into your above your your grass like that's
1: that's what that's kind of the same thing
0: i mean i understand that the consequences are greater but it's because i mean because these landowners have been, whether they were sold it or they just have that, mm. that belief that they have that extra access or that extra section or whatever it is that they have, like, I think they put value on that probably when purchasing a ranch or when valuing a mm-hmm. ranch. There is a value to having that as an outfitted space or something exclusive that... Exclusive access. Ex- yeah, exclusive right. access in whatever form, whether it's for hunting or not. A mm-hmm. lot of times when we're looking at it, it's with, in terms of hunting. Right. But it can, like, in that case, it's a very valuable piece of property for the hunting. Like there's big elk, there's yeah. a lot of elk. So naturally people want to right. have access to that. But yeah. And so
1: this person in, in that case, you know, is a non-resident. I think it's kind of ironic that most of these cases are non-resident landowners. Uh, because we have so many really good landowners who would just say, don't climb over it, go around the corner, just stay on BLM. You know, there's, there's a ton of them, but in this case, this person paid a ton of money for exclusivity and was told you have the property rights to exclude others right well a realtor can't just invent that property right yeah (laughs) that property right has to be defined and there's nowhere in the united states that a deed comes that says this deed to this property gives you all this airspace. No one has ever found it. It's never been out there. So realtors, some of you are hunters, sorry about that. But there are realtors out there who are selling these ranches under the premise that you are buying the right to exclude everybody.
0: Right. Well. And you don't have to pay the tax. I mean, you have, maybe you pay a grazing lease or whatever, but you're not like you're getting- In a fraction. Yeah. Yeah. So, so
1: it's, it's a manu... At this point, to say that that is a right this non-resident landowner bought, the right to control access to the public, that is a manufactured property right by whoever told him or her that. Gotcha. And their legal counsel should have warned them of this. So if he's upset with somebody and he loses all this, I hope that his realtor and his law firm have really good malpractice <laughs> insurance. Because that means he probably paid double or triple what the true value of his property was and he's not gonna be happy. Right. But that's not our fault. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I can't go out there and make up property rights. Yeah, no. That's... It'd be nice if we could, but you know. Yeah. So anyhow, this case, uh, I think the first hurdle was cleared yes. where it allows it to continue but it doesn't really solve everything so mm-hmm. everybody who who's excited about it I think we should be but let's keep it in context of just it's a small criminal case at a lower court in one county in
0: Wyoming. Right so are you going to be doing a another look at this with your your friends your your attorneys yeah
1: the the podcast we did i think they're number 178 and 179 Mm -hmm. on hunt talk radio uh tom and nick were attorneys i heard tom drove to rollins wyoming and sat through the entire case cool so he's now firsthand yeah Yeah. giving me the reports of hey we got to get on the podcast we got to talk about this cool and we want to talk about this case and what the important parts were but I think more importantly we want to examine what the possibilities are in the federal civil case yeah
0: yeah, it'll be really interesting that's like the the big culmination hopefully I mean we'll see we'll see yeah I guess it all remains to be seen because like you said, he could pull out at any moment you know just withdraw the claims right yep but, well
1: exciting stuff
0: it's yeah it's very interesting because I mean I feel like this has always been something on ever since i started looking at maps this is like something that's been on my mind as a public land hunter it's like how do you get access to that parcel and it's like oh you can't or maybe you can or yeah probably not you know it's just like this this unknown this gray area and so it'd be nice to at the very least have clarity yeah and so i mean naturally i want to root for the public having access via the the corner hop but it's just like At least, like we need some clarity on the whole situation. And
1: I I would just tell hunters, think about this in the bigger context. For years and years, this hasn't really been that big of an issue. Most, or a lot of landowners anyhow, have always allowed access. Right, yeah. So we gotta be careful not to lump those landowners who've been allowing access into the, I call them the new age, non-resident billionaire who comes and does what we just talked about. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting. But thanks for enlightening me on this. I'm a lot of the legal stuff and all of you know what precedent is when that's set and all that is just very new to me. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah,
1: in the first podcast, we spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. talking about the priority of law. Yeah. In other words, what's the most? What carries the most weight? Mm -hmm. And you'll see as we walk through that, a criminal case at a small court is right down there at the bottom. But, hey, it's the start.
0: Step in the right direction. All right. Thanks for watching.